from the Gospel of John. We've got a great passage. Uh, Tracy just read, what a wonderful reading of that passage. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to waste no time. This is a long passage and there's a lot to unpack. It's a thick passage. And so there is so much that is in this particular passage that is just so wonderful as we hear what God is doing in Jesus with this woman, this Samaritan woman. So John chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1, I'm going to kind of read through this, make some observations as we go, and then note this conversation that Jesus has with this woman that takes so many twists and turns, and to ask the question, what does God have for us here at Taft Avenue through this particular passage? It's, it is a beaut. So let's take a look. John 4, 1. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus wasn't, we have this parenthetical statement, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And it says this in verse 4, that he had to go through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. All right. Now, there, this is thick. There's a lot of stuff in here, but I think the way I just want to talk about this first part is just to note the first thing about Jesus is there are going to be three major boundaries that Jesus crosses in this initial part of the passage. That Jesus, there are social boundaries that Jesus is going to say, I know you all think this, but I'm just going to walk right over that boundary. And he does it on three different things. And so to unpack this and to begin to get a sense of what John is doing in recounting the story, let's figure out what Jesus transgresses. Not sins, but the social boundaries that he transgresses. And the first thing is this. The first thing that the reader would have been caught off guard with in the original writing of John, the very first thing that Jesus does, he crosses this boundary, is that he ignores a 500-year-old hostility that existed between Jews and Samaritans. And you might be thinking, what the heck is a Samaritan? Okay, and what, what, are, what is the difference between Jews and Samaritans? Because they, they both live in Israel. They both are in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're both in this area. But here's a little bit of the tension and the hostility that Jesus is experiencing as he goes into this region of Samaria with these people called Samaritans. You've probably heard of the Samarit Samaritans because there's that parable of the Good Samaritan, and we have Good Samaritan laws, and so what the heck is a Samaritan in the first place? So here's the, just a little bit of background. So get in the, in the Wayback Machine and go back in your Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, before the nation of Israel is taken into Babylonian captivity, before that, the Assyrians are in power, and they come into the region of Samaria, and they conquer Samaria, and they take a bunch of Jews out of there, and they send them to foreign places, but they repopulate the land, the area of Samaria, with pagans. They take pagans, and they repopulate the area. Now, anytime that any group is taken captive or anything like that, some people go, some people stay, but basically all the people that remain, they intermarry with these new pagans. Now, it's only a few years later that the Babylonians come in and they lay siege to Jerusalem and they cart off everybody. So, like, Daniel goes out, we, Ezekiel goes out. There's these waves of captive, captives that go out to Babylon. 
Okay, now fast forward to the Persians. The Persians come in, you guys are like, man, you're geek mode early today, but hang in with me, okay? The Persians send back this group of people. Um, uh, Ezra comes back for the temple, Nehemiah comes back for the walls, but when they're rebuilding Jerusalem, these people from Samaria come over and they say, hey, can we help rebuild? Can we help rebuild the city of Jerusalem? Like, we're all in this together, right? It's like the pandemic. Like, we're all in this together. And probably like the pandemic, you realize, like, no, we're not all in this together. Like, the, the Jews who return, they're like, look, you dirty half-breed Samaritans. You get out of here. We don't need your help. And it begins this tension, this tension between these two people. And, and eventually what we find out is that the Samaritans actually, though they come in all as pagans, the intermarrying between the Jews, that what ends up happening is they actually become Yahweh worshipers. And they worship the one true God, Yahweh. And what's interesting is that there's a couple of differences between Jews and Samaritans. One thing is that in your Old Testament, you have an Old Testament, right? And in the Old Testament, in the Jewish understanding, you have the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay? And it's your whole Old Testament. Well, the Samaritans... They didn't take, use the whole Old Testament. They only used the law, the Torah. And you might be like, well, that's kind of an interesting theological, like who, care, like, who really cares, Pastor Craig? Well, here's, what, here's the difference. If you only have the Torah, you don't have any of the information about the kings and the prophets. Particularly, you don't have any particular allegiance to David and the kings who brought the, who brought the kingdom and the capital to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you read, if you read and you, if you just had the Torah, this is what it says in Deuteronomy. When Deuteronomy is written, when, the, when Moses, um, and you're like, wow, you are, now you've not come out of geek mode, you're just deeper into geek mode. So hang in there. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, when Moses is saying, hey, you all are going to go in the land, all you children of Israel, you're all going to go in the land, he says this in 1129, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering and to take possession of it, you shall set a blessing, not on Jerusalem, on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria. And you know what Joshua does? When Joshua brings the children of Israel into the land, you know where he goes? He goes right to Samaria, and he sets up an altar on Mount Gerizim. Now, if you only believe the Torah, you'd be like, that's the spot. That's the place where we worship. And that's what the Samaritans had done. They had built, they actually, when there's this temple that's being built in Jerusalem, when Ezra's coming back, the Samaritans are actually building a competitive temple. And they build a competitive temple on Mount Gerizim. And they're like, you know, they're like, we want to help you. And then the, Jew, the people who are coming back are like, we don't need your help. They're like, we're going to build our own temple. And you've got these kind of dueling, it's like dueling banjo temple, right? Like, that you, Jerusalem worship, Mount Gerizim worship, and there's this deep-seated tension. Now, fast forward a little bit, okay, more geek mode. When the Greeks are in charge, they base their, their invasion fleet, their invasion force, they base it in Samaria. Now, when the Jews rebel against them, and they conquer and they kick out the Greeks, you know what they do? They go up to Samaria, and they burn down that temple. They burn it to the ground. It's like the Greeks are gone, but while we're here, we're going to burn your temple down. So what do the Samaritans do in response? One Passover, a few years uh, late, like late first century AD or a BC, 
before Passover, what they do is they take, they dig up all the bones from the graves that are around Jerusalem, and they walk onto the Temple Mount, and they scatter dead bones everywhere to defile the location. Like, these people don't like each other. It's like the worst college rivalry. Like, you know, you hear about people like poisoning trees and things like that and going and like taking down statues and all those things. Like, this is what's going on here. Only these people do not like each other at all. There's a deep-seated resentment. Even though this was the fastest route from north to south in Israel, called the Patriarch Route, that, that some really pious Jews would just go right around it. Although most Jews kind of would just, they'd go through, they'd just try to kind of keep their head down and, and make it through. That's really what they would do. And so Jesus is one of those who's like, look, I'm not going to go around this. I'm just going to keep my head down. Our, our, all these disciples, we're just going to keep our head down. We're going to go through. Okay? So, but Jesus in this passage is going to say, look, this 500-year-old rivalry, I'm done. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And so that's the first thing that as a reader, you'd be like, okay, Jesus, like you're, you're, not, you're not behaving like your typical Jewish man. All right, so here we go. Let's keep going. Second thing. Second thing that he goes on, second thing that he does. So the first thing is he ignores the rivalry. He ignores the resentment. The second thing that he does is that, and this might not sound, this might not sound significant to you, um, but what Jesus does when he talks to the woman at the well is he does not enter the conversation from a place of honor and strength. You would expect he's a Jewish rabbi. I mean, heck, he's the son of God in John, right? But he, how does he enter? What does it say? What does it say when he shows up at the well? He's sitting on the well because why? He's tired. He's not just acting tired. He is tired. He's thirsty. He's just gone on this trip. And you can tell, like, he's like, he's like, hey, guys, you go into town and get provisions. I'm just going to sit here on the well because I'm tired. And he really is tired. Like, Jesus is human as much as he is God. He's tired. And by being tired and entering into this, like, he asks for help. The first thing with this woman is he asks for help. This is not a place of strength. And as much as we might be like, that's not a, we see that all the time today. But in the ancient world, this would not have been the way that any man would have entered into any kind of conversation, let alone with a woman. And that brings us to the third thing. The third thing that Jesus, the third boundary that Jesus walks right over is that, is this, that no self-respecting male talks to any woman in public. I mean, rabbis were like, don't talk much to any women, not even your wives. Like, you're, you're like, some of your wives are like, well, that, my husband takes that advice, and he doesn't talk much. Anyway, talk to your wife. It's good. Share your feelings. It's good stuff. Okay, um, a little marital counseling there. We'll move on. Okay, um, but he essentially breaks the taboo against talking to women, particularly pu talking in public to a woman or talking in an uninhabited place where there are no witnesses. In rural village society, a even today, a strange man does not make eye contact with women. If you go into rural villages in Israel or Arab villages or in Turkey or things like that, the more inland you get, you don't make eye contact with people. Now, the tourist industry has changed that a little bit, but if you actually get into the culture of the day, men do not make eye contact with women other than their wives. And here's Jesus talking to a woman, talking to a woman, not just eye contact, addressing her. 
and she's a Samaritan woman. So this initial section is just thick. It's thick with information that we need to see the significance of this interaction. So let's talk a little bit about the woman, because if you, have you heard, how many people have heard this story before? The woman at the well is what it's called. If you have, you've probably heard a lot of things about what this woman must have been. What must she have been, or what must she have been like? What was her reputation? And there's a number of things, a number of clues in the text that give us some sense about who this woman was, the reputation of this woman among the interpreters. And here are, here are the clues. If we, look, if we look back up in 4, uh, how about 4, 6? It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. All right. So first thing that we find out is that this woman is coming at, she's coming to draw water, and she's coming at noon. Now here's what we know about the ancient world, that drawing water was the responsibility of women in the village. And women, because they were oftentimes sequestered into their own homes, the drawing of water was an opportunity for women to come socially together to go out to the well and to do the tasks together. They would have water pots that were difficult to lift, and so they would do it together as a group. It was, it was really one opportunity for women to socialize together. As a matter of fact, we saw when, when in Afghanistan, sometimes um, what we heard was the military would sink wells in the middle of the village so people didn't have to go out to the village to the, well, to the, to the water supplies. But the women were like, we want to go out to the water supplies together. Like it was, their social, it was their social gathering time. It was their chance to talk to each other. Their chance to get together to socialize. Gathering water because it was outside and it was a long journey and it was heavy would usually be done in the morning or in the evening when it was cool. What do we find out about this woman? She's coming alone and she's coming in the heat of the day. Which probably means at some point she has been on the outs with the women of the village. She's not coming to socialize. As a matter of fact, I think what you're going to see in this passage is she doesn't want to talk to anybody. And she's going to be evading Jesus. She's like, when is this conversation over? She doesn't want to talk to anybody. She's not come for socialization. And she's come in the heat of the day. So somehow we find out that this woman, this, fa- this woman coming alone at noon gives some sense that she's not comfortable in the social setting of other women or has been ostracized from that community. And this is probably what we find out. Then later we find out that she's had serial marriages. Jesus has five husbands, and now you've got one now that isn't really your husband. And probably this idea that this woman has, been, has had serial marriages, which means she's had serial divorces. The rabbis say, look, the rabbis basically said, look, one divorce, maybe two divorces is okay, but beyond that, no, 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 no. That's what the rabbi said. And this woman is on number five. Five divorces. Now, we don't know why those divorces happened. Whether she was barren, if she was barren, she might have been, if, because if you were expecting children when you got married, and she, did, she was barren, she gets kicked to the curb. There's lots of reasons why rabbis would say you could, you could divorce, and there were a lot of kind of laws that didn't really benefit women, that you could divorce a woman for any cause. Multiple divorces, maybe barrenness, current cohabitation, likely gained her a bad reputation, whether deserved or not. But she is no longer the pristine maiden of her youth. 
And she knows it. And she's coming at noon alone. All right. Now, one of the things about this woman that to me is significant and to most commentators is this. Um, when Nicodemus, go back to Nicodemus. This, this, this section, the, the section of John is going to be conversation after conversation after conversation that Jesus has. When Nicodemus comes, honorable, buttoned up, Pharisee, when does he come? At night. And there's a, there's a symbolism of the darkness, that there's a darkness of, 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 uh, of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus eventually comes around, but it's chapters later, right? It's chapters later, it's years later that Nicodemus comes around. This woman, when does she come? Does she come at night? No, 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 no. She comes in the brightness of day. Is she honorable? No. She's not honorable, but John is saying she has come in the light. And as much as, and Nicodemus comes curious, she comes totally like, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. But the light will shine on her, and living water will flow from her. Immediately. It won't take chapters. It will flow immediately from her. She will immediately go and bear witness of who Jesus is. Whoever this woman is, like it doesn't matter what her reputation is, the light is going to shine on her. She comes, and it's almost like an uncomfortable spotlight on her, but living water will spring up within her, and she will bear witness, and she will be the first evangelist in the Gospel of John. The first one, a Samaritan woman, serial marriages and divorces. She's, she's like, you know, Jesus is like, you know, I don't tell anybody really that I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to tell you. And you're going to be my testifier. And we're not going to have to wait chapters and chapters and chapters to bear fruit. We're going to sow today and reap today. There's going to be no, there's going to be no, no wait four months for the harvest. We're sowing today, we're reaping today, and it is going to be because living water is going to come from you. So whatever we know about this woman or whatever we think we know about this woman, John wants us to know whatever we think we know about this woman, we don't know about this woman. She's going to, for some reason, God is going to choose her, Jesus is going to choose her in a really unexpected way, to be this person who bears witness and we see fruit, not even from the nation of Israel, but from the Samaritans. You guys with me? Because that pretty much pumps me up. Like this is the way, I, it seems to me this is the way God works, isn't it? He doesn't show up strong, he shows up in need. And he doesn't choose the strong and the mighty, he chooses the one of, of, of interesting reputation, and then he does something miraculous through her. Something restorative through her. All right, let's keep going because the conversation is really interesting. I, I hope you're getting a sense of, of just, look, John, I, I'm, I've been having a great time with John and there are times where John will just cut me, cut me low and, and surprise me and I think that John is such a, is such a great book. Look at um, verse 10, verse 10. Let's, let's talk about this probing conversation that Jesus has. So, um, starting in verse 10, and we're just going to walk through it. <clears throat> now, there's a number of ways, excuse me, there's a number of ways to read this conversation, and I love the way that Tracy read it, because we all know how you read dialogue affects the meaning of what's being said, right? Like how you read something, if you just read it straight, it, and or sometimes you can get a little churchy with it, like it, this is being read in church, so it's got to be all cleaned up and everything. 
with the way John writes this, and I'm going to give you a, a, a sense of how this is read. So here's, here's the, the idea that um, we have to have inflection so that we can understand the dialogue, especially in this kind of loaded interaction. So I'm going to read this dialogue to you as if the woman is not looking for interaction. Okay? I'm going to read it to you as if the woman is not looking for conversation, let alone with a man, let alone with a Jew. Okay? You guys with me? All right. So here's, this is the reading of this, of this passage. Under, taking that as the starting point, this is the reading. Okay? So a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to me, said, give me a drink. So the convention is, Jesus, on top of the well, you have a big rock, a big stone that's been hewn out, that's probably circular, it covers the well, and it's probably about 18 to 24 inches uh, thick. And so Jesus is essentially sitting on this well, the, the rock of the well, and you would have somewhere on there, you'd have a wood covering, a very small slit in which you could drop a leather bag that would go and pick up water, and then you'd lift, lift it up. And Jesus is tired, and so he's sitting on this well. Now the convention is, because you don't talk or you don't interact with women, is that when you see someone come, like if a man saw a woman walking up, what he would do, this is what you're supposed to do. If you see a woman coming up, you know she's going to draw water, and so as a man, you would just do this. You'd be like, okay, I'm just going to go stand over here. Don't make eye contact. You just kind of walk away, let her do her thing. But what does Jesus do? He's planted. He's not going anywhere. He's not getting up. He's not going to be conventional. He just sits there. And then he does, and then it says, so the Samaritan, so he says, give me a drink. And so uh, she says, so she says in 4.9, the Samaritan woman said to him, for how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So that phrase, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, what, what it probably, it's probably a bad translation to be honest, because what were the disciples doing in town? Like they're having dealings with Samaritans, right? What it really means is that Jews don't drink out of the same vessels as Samaritans. And so when he asks the woman, hey, give me a drink, she's like, you're asking for a drink from my bag? You Jews don't do that. How are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, a woman, for a drink. So he's a male speaking with a female, and she makes all these points. He's a male speaking with a female. He's a Jew speaking with a Samaritan. He's a Jew asking to drink from an unclean vessel of a Samaritan. And he's admitting weakness in need publicly. Publicly admitting weakness is a dishonor. And he's asking for a drink. She's unimpressed. Let's just put it that way. She doesn't want the conversation. She's come alone. This guy won't get up and leave. Now she goes about doing her work, but this guy won't go. He's just talking. This, this weary traveler, for being so thirsty, he's a real chatterbox. 410, Jesus answered, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, living water, 
in the ancient world, if you, living water was running water. You, would get, you could get water from lots of places like wells or cisterns where you would gather rainwater, and that's usually what you would do in, in Israel, right, Dave? We were there. It's cisterns, like there's cisterns everywhere, and they collect all kinds of rainwater. Even today, Israel collects and all its rainwater. Like, we let all our rainwater run out to the ocean. Like, what are we doing? But they collect like 80% of their rainwater. We collect like 15% of our rainwater, okay? But they still do that today. So this idea, but, but if you collect things in cisterns, it gets like silty, like dust can get in there, it gets stagnant, even though that's why you have these big rocks on top so no, no silt or no sun can get in, so no algae can grow, okay? So that's the idea. But Jesus says living water, living water is running water. Living water is spring water. Living water is creek water. Living water is river water. Living water is running water. And if you find a spring that has running water to it, boom, that was the spot. Most of the rabbis thought that that was the better water for purification. That was the better water for drinking. Everyone knew that living water was what you wanted. Now, here's the deal. This lady lives here. She knows where all the water supplies are. She knows where all the springs are. And there's a well here. And this guy's sitting on a well. And she's going to ask him, hey, look. Um, uh, well, and obviously with Jesus, and this is the same thing that we saw with Nicodemus. He says something spiritual. She takes it as simply earthly. So this double meaning living water, although it always refers to running waters, rivers, streams, springs. Jesus here is referring to the Holy Spirit. So the woman says, uh, hello, Captain Obvious, verse 11. Uh, Sir, you don't have anything to draw water with, and the well is deep. It's over 100 feet deep today, probably deeper back in that day. The well is deep. To, you can go to this well, by the way, today. Um, I've not been there. It's in the Palestinian Authority. It's by Shechem, uh, or Nablus is where it's at, um, which is what, what it's called today. Um, but... But look, you, the well is deep, and she's all, where do you get this living water? Like, look, chatterbox, dude, weary traveler, you don't, you just asked me for a drink because you don't have anything to dip, dip into the well, and you're saying you have living water. Do you know where a spring is? You're not even from around here. I know where all the springs are. So she's annoyed. She notes that Jesus has no bucket. He's already asked for a drink. He's a helpless traveler. How can he offer anything, let alone spring water? In other words, she's saying, do you know of some secret spring around here? 4.2. And then she has, or 4.12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And of course, the readers of John are like, yes. But it's irony, right? Like, we, we're let in. We're let into the secret. We know who Jesus is. She doesn't. He gave us this well and drank from it himself. Our, like, this well was good enough for Jacob. Remember the guy that also was named Israel? And his 12 sons, the nation of Israel, they all drank from this well. And that well isn't good enough for you? Weary traveler who thinks that they have access to living water? Like, she's, this lady is getting irritated. Big time with this guy, this Jewish guy who won't obey any of the conventions, and she, it's just ramping up. Like, it's getting, it's getting more and more tense. Is this well not good enough for you? 
are you greater than Jacob? And, and it, you can almost hear her say something like, are you, uh, what are you, better than Jacob? Pfft. Like that's the tone that we're getting out of this. And of course, we're in on the secret. Jesus is greater than Jacob. But she's unimpressed with this needy, weary, more growing, more and more annoying traveler. 4.13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water springing up to eternal life. Again, Jesus offers the spiritual, the offer of the satisfaction of deepest thirst. Uh, the water that I give will be the Holy Spirit. The language, and you, we get this idea even in Scripture, the language of the pouring out of the Spirit is water analogy, that the Holy Spirit, there's this metaphor that the Spirit is like water and it'll be poured out on people and Jesus is basically saying this. But she only hears about the earthly, physical water. And so in 4.15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, probably here the woman is being sarcastic. It's very likely that the woman is simply being sarcastic. Like, this guy who's annoying, who's a chatterbox, and he's talking now about magical water. Like, everyone knows on the face of things that you have to keep drinking water in order to live. But he's saying, nobody's, you're never going to be thirsty again. You're just going to, you're going to drink it once and it's going to satisfy your thirst. And she's like, look, this, this is, this is ridiculous. There's no magical water. And even if you drink it, you're going to have to drink more. This traveler's talking magic and he's talking crazy. And while she's in the task of, of probably dropping a bucket in and taking it up 100 feet with water in it, she's like, well, she's all, well, why don't you just give me this water so I won't have to be here doing this or talking with you? Like, you can imagine, she's just like, she's incredulous at this point. Give me this water. Why don't you just give me this magic water? By all means, let me have the water. Then I won't be thirsty or have to do this work or come talk to you anymore. And this is where Jesus, in this kind of probing, sparring conversation, is going to probe now and penetrate and cut, actually. In verse 4.16, Jesus said, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. When she answers, I have no husband, it is the most terse, quickest way you can say that in Greek. Ukeko Andra, I don't have a husband. Like, you can, even, you can even imagine as she's doing this work, and she's like, she's like, she's like oh, give me this water. This, she's all, go grab your husband and bring him back. He's like, and she's like, I don't have a husband. Like, he just put his finger on the nerve. Jesus goes on and he says in 417 Jesus said you're right in saying I have no husband now the way it's written in Greek you're right in saying husband I do not have because five husbands you have 
is the way it's written. So, not, so the emphasis is on, you're right in saying, husband, you do not have, because you've got five husbands. And the one that you're with now is not even your husband. And then he says, this, you have spoken truly. Implying that up, up to this point, she's been so standoffish, but now she's revealed actually something about herself that is actually accurate. I mean, this is not, this is not, this is not the most comfortable, like, for me, if I'm watching this conversation, I'm like doing, because this is the way I, I I'm like, like, how about, like, take off, call off the dogs, like, it is, you are going after this woman. I don't, is anybody in here, does anybody here love conflict, like, watching an awkward moment, does anybody love that? Jeff Sherrod should be raising your hand, I, I appreciate that. Okay, I, I don't, and some people do. Some people love to watch these awkward confrontations, and they're like, well, it's like popcorn. Like, let's watch, like, I'm like, ah, I like Jesus. I would have backed off a long time ago. Like, I had to go to the tire place to talk to this guy about a warranty, and I'm like, I don't want to talk about the warranty. Like, I don't want conflict. Ah! Like, that's, that's like me. I don't know. I'm probably alone. You guys are fine with conflict. That's great, okay? But that's totally me. And Jesus is just like, Boom, 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 just after this woman. Now, here's the deal. At some point, Jesus has to win her over. And this is where, this is where commentators differ on this, on this topic, on, the, on the, the conversation. Like, when does Jesus win the woman over? Some people think it's here because she's like, hey, I perceive you're a prophet. I don't think that's true. I think she's like, I, th- I think this is the way she's saying this. I-, I, think what, I think where Jesus wins her is when he starts talking about worship. Okay? But here, I think what, when she says, I perceive that you're a prophet, I think she's basically being sarcastic again, like, I'm a woman coming alone to the well at noontime, and you figure this all out on your own, Sherlock Holmes? Right? Like, I think she's like, she's like yeah, you must be a prophet. You figured this all out. Way to go, big guy right? Like she's all, it's all the signs are that she's an outcast. So yeah, I'm a woman with a bad reputation. I'm coming at noon, no other women to get water. And you figure this out all by yourself? We got a real prophet here. So then what she does is what most people do when they want to end a conversation. They launch into a topic that they know is going to divide them unmistakably. If you want to end any political conversation, like bring up the most controversial topic you can possibly think of. I've been in situations like this where I'm just trying to get to know some people and there's one person in a group that's just trying to find the point of most disagreement. As a professor in classrooms, this happens all the time. And you'll find people, they're just looking for the place to show you what side of the fence you are on and that you're not on the same side of the fence as me. This is, this is a total social way that people engage in debate. They find the weak spot, and that's what she does. She's like, hey, I know well in this conversation. Let's talk about where we should worship. Because she's done with this dude. She is done. And she says this. You know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, here. But you Jews say we should be in Jerusalem. That's where people ought to work. 
ought to worship. And she's like, look, irreconcilable differences, this conversation is over. Done. And this is where Jesus, this is where Jesus is amazingly compassionate. This is where Jesus says, I will not be Samaritan or Jew. I will not be a Republican or Democrat. I will not be put in your categories. And he says this. He says, woman, believe me. And it's not, he's not like, woman, believe, because remember, he calls his own mother woman, right? At the wedding in Cain of Galilee. He says, look, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, you worship what you don't know. You Samaritans, you, you really don't know everything because you, you don't have the whole revelation. We, Jews, we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. We are the ones in the line and the lineage of revelation. But he says in 4.23, but an hour is coming. And whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he's always talking about his death. He says an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now listen to this. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. On this one point, Jesus is like, I, all this hostility, this 500-year-old hostility of people dumping dead bones and burning down temples, I'm putting an end to it. Done. Done. I'm done with this. And furthermore, the Father is seeking worshipers. And you know what he's seeking first? He's seeking you first. You will be the first to worship in spirit and truth. You Samaritan woman with a bad reputation, you. You're the one. Jesus refuses to let this be a dividing point, but rather says that the Father is seeking to include all worshipers. He's seeking this woman. I think this is the point where Jesus wins her over. Because then she says this. We know that Messiah is coming. Now here's the deal. The Samaritans did not believe in Messiah. They believed in the prophet, but they didn't use the word Messiah. Why? Because they only used the Torah. The Messiah is explained more or less in the, the, the prophets and the writings. But she's like, we know that Messiah is coming and he's going to reveal all this. Like she actually is like, she gives a little bit here. The Messiah is coming. He will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. Notice that she says, this is, okay. She says, he will tell us all things. But Jesus says, I am the one speaking to you, singular, just you. Like this is a message 
for you. And I, like Jesus does, is not in the habit of saying, I'm the Messiah. You never see that anywhere else. Jesus does not admit that he's the Messiah. He's always like, don't tell anybody, you know, don't tell anybody. Like, I, but here he's like, to this woman, between you and me, I'm the guy. I am. And this is, the first, this, this is the first I am statement in the Gospel of John. I am is what, when Moses says, hey, I need to know a name. Like Moses is like, God's like, hey, I need you to go set my people free. And, um, and, and he's like, well, who should I say is sending me? And, um, and God says, um, well, you can call me um, Yahweh. And, uh, and what that means is, it means I am. Tell him I am has sent you. And then in the Gospel of John, there's a number of occasions where Jesus will say, I am, in Greek, ego me, I am. And this is the first time that he says that. And so we go from this idea, like, she's like weary traveler, like Jew, Jewish man, uh, rabbi, like she's unimpressed with all this stuff. Then she gets to prophet, still unimpressed. And now, Messiah, I am. By the end of this passage, Jesus is the savior of the world. Because the light is shining on this woman. The light is shining on this woman, and this woman is going to go, and living water is going to flow from her, and she is going to give witness and bear witness of this, and the whole town is going to come out. And that's where the passage ended that Tracy read. As we keep going, I'm just going to keep going with this. 427, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said this. So they're like stunned. They're like, Jesus, what the heck are you? They don't say anything because they don't want to shame their teacher, but they're like, yo, what are you doing, okay? And then in 428, the woman left her water jar, which means she's got to come back. She left her water jar. She went away into town and said to the people, now this is her testimony. This is her testimony. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. So she's the first evangelist, the woman of questionable reputation. The light is shown. She's become a fountain of living water to all the Samaritans, to all the people. But as we, as we kind of wrap this up, there's, there's three things I want us to pay attention to, and that's this. One, the woman's testimony. The only thing it says, it says in 427 or 429 that he told me all that I ever did. That was, she said that, and there's a couple things on top of that. Could he be the Messiah? And then in verse 39, in verse 39, look, at, look ahead to verse 39. Many from the Samaritans of that town believed because of the woman's testimony, quote, he told me all that I ever did. Like she goes back into town, and I don't know, maybe it's because of her reputation, and they're like wondering if they're going to be mentioned in this. Um, but he, he goes out, and he's like, and she's like, what's her testimony? Her testimony's not like, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and there's a Roman's road and like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All she says is, he's told me everything I've ever done. He's told me everything I've ever done. Like that's a hor- like we might look at that and be like, could you be a little bit more specific? But this is, this is the beginning of the living water that comes out. It's just, it's what the Lord has done for her. It's what the Lord has done for her. And I got news for you, like our testimony, whenever you give your testimony, look, you can be theolo- like there can be you can have you can be trained and have like a theological da, 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 da. but look the best the best way to bear witness of Jesus is simply to say this is what the Lord has done for me. Even just now just think about this like what would be one sentence that you could say if you were to say 
what would be a, what would be your testimony the way you would testify about Jesus I think I might say something like I think I might say something like he gave meaning to my life and my work like for me as I reflect back on it and I think like what 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 is it that I feel like has been the meaning, what, what has Jesus done? And I feel like he's given me purpose. As a 14-year-old kid, when I heard the gospel, I was like, I was just looking for a path forward. And he gave me meaning and purpose. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like he has removed all of the shame of my life. Maybe that's it. He's forgiven me. Because of Jesus, I have peace and I don't have to suffer from anxiety. I don't know what it is. What is the testimony? But look, this woman's got a one-sentence testimony. And that one sentence gets everybody in the town to come out. What's your one sentence? Just one sentence that you can just drop. He gave meaning to my life and my work. I think the other thing about her testimony and we might fly right over it because um, she says um, in verse 29 the first thing she says is come and see do you remember the last time we heard that in the gospel remember when Philip tells Nathaniel hey I found this guy Jesus of Nazareth and Nathaniel's like you lost me at Nazareth can anything good come from Nazareth and what does Philip say come and see good Jewish guy following Jesus and now this woman echoes the words of Jesus and of Philip, come and see. Just come and see. That's a great testimony too. Just come and see. He gave meaning to my life and work. Just come and see. Second thing I just want to point out when I first read this passage, like, there's, this, there's a section afterward where Jesus is talking to his disciples about food. Like, they're like, eat, Rabbi, eat, Rabbi. And he's like, I have food. They're, all, they're doing my will. My, you have nothing to know. Like, there's this thing about food that's going on. And then Jesus is like, hey, let's talk about farming. And he goes on and he say, you've heard it said, uh, you know, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. And he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. This is what he's telling his disciples. The disciples are like, eat, Rabbi, eat, Rabbi. And he's like, I have food. I'm doing the will of my Father, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, look, I want you guys to know, usually you think like when we sow seed, it takes like at least four months for it to grow, and then we harvest. But that's not the case today. Today, we sow seed immediately, and we reap immediately, because look at that road filled with Samaritans. The field is white with harvest. All those, all those dirty Samaritans, Hey guys, we're going to stay a couple days and the field is white with harvest. And it's so cool, he's like, he's like you didn't work for this harvest like she did, but you're going to reap. You didn't work, you didn't labor for this, she labored for this. You're going to reap though. It's time to go reaping boys, Right? These are, the field is white. It's not the, Jew, it's not the Jewish population, it's the Samaritans. It's the dirty, rotten Samaritans. 
And John has a special thing about the Gentiles and the Samaritans. But Jesus is going to stay for two days. They ask him, they come out, and they start talking to him. They're like, stay with us, stay with us. And all the disciples are like, no. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's stay a couple days. Because, you know, Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans, right? Like, let's stay, let's eat, let's drink. Let's be with these people. Let's talk to them. The fields are white with harvest. I suppose just... I don't know who you don't like. I know you probably have people you don't like, or maybe I'm just talking to myself, okay? I'll talk to myself. Maybe it's bad drivers, okay? And you're like, everybody, everybody but me is a bad driver in my book, right? Okay, just me. Or maybe it's somewhat, some different political persuasion, right? Like, like maybe, you know, you're, you don't like, you know, flaming liberal Democrats, or maybe you don't like, you know, MAGA Republicans, or whatever it is, okay? I don't know who you don't like. There's probably people you don't like, and I'm just saying, I'm just saying, and maybe again, I'm just talking to myself, because you guys love everybody. There are probably people who annoy you, you don't like, maybe it's a generational thing, maybe you're like those young snowflakes, or you're like all those old baby boomers, you know, whatever it is. I'm just saying, Maybe some people don't like other people, okay? Just saying. Now, I want you, whoever it is you don't like, maybe you don't like immigrants. Maybe you don't like wealthy people. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe, but whatever, we, we've all got these little, these little things, like if cornered, it might come out of us. Like whatever, whoever it is you don't know, and only you, don't, you know who you don't like, okay? Now, I want you to imagine one person like that. I just want you to imagine that person. Now I want you to imagine a whole group of those people walking down the road towards you. And now I want you to imagine Jesus saying, the fields are white with harvest. Because that's what he's saying to his disciples. This is where the harvest begins, with the people you don't like. This is where the harvest begins. And that woman who you don't like, she's starting it. You don't even deserve to reap. She did all the work, but we're going to reap, and we're going to partner with her. She's now your partner in ministry. That woman you don't like. Look, this passage, this is not, this is not an antiseptic passage. This is not a passage that's all pretty and like you put on like there might there you know like the fields are white with harvest you might find that on like a hobby lobby decoration or something like that and you hang it up and on a doyle or doily or something like that or maybe you have a throw pillow in your house with the fields are white with harvest on it like that that is that's those are like fighting words that's an irritant what he says there is like they're like jesus what like it should it it's not like oh that's so nice it's like that makes me angry But that's what Jesus is doing. We're just going to cut through 500 years of anger and hatred and division, and we're just going to go right for it because you know what? Our God, our God is a seeking God. Don't miss this. In, when he says this, this is the last thing, and I promise we'll be done. This, honestly, we, we will. Okay, in 423, we might miss it. An hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Sometimes we're like, that's it, that's the memory verse, but it's not. He says, our Father is seeking people 
He's seeking people. Like one commentary noted that when, 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 when someone was commenting on the parable of the lost sheep, that you lose a sheep and the, and the shepherd goes out to find the sheep, that, and that's what God is like, that this is the first time in the first century when Jesus is teaching, this is the first time that really the idea that there's a, a God up there that's out seeking people. He's looking for worshipers. God is seeking. God is seeking. I'm going to call the worship team back up here. And the very last thing, the very last thing, you're like, you already said that three things ago. Um, The very last thing is this. Jesus has this uncanny way of just sitting down in a strategic spot where you might have to go every day because he just wants to have a conversation with you. And I don't know where that is. Maybe it's like I've got a string of doctor's appointments I need to go, and I want to just say, Jesus is going to sit there and wait for you. He's not going to get up. Like it might be with a difficult relationship. Every time you have to get in that relationship, Jesus is just going to be sitting there waiting with you. Having a conversation. It might be an uncomfortable conversation, but look, this Jesus is not budging for any social convention because you know why? God is seeking and he sent Jesus to seek and he's got you in his crosshairs and he's looking for you. He's seeking you because true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth and the Father is seeking after them. He's a seeking God. So let's pray, let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would reveal to us where it is that you're sitting in our life, what spot you're sitting that you just want to have this conversation with us? Where are you strategically placing yourself? We thank you for the story of the woman at the well. There's so much here. So challenging, Father. So challenging. Would you help us to rise and meet the challenge? To obey Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. To share our testimony. And to recognize, Jesus, that you are with us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.